So happy, happy morning. With Rex, I greet you. Um, we're having a good time in First John. Any of you joining us online, I'm glad you're able to join us this way. I look forward to the day you can join us in person and make our joy complete. I invite you to turn to First John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, while you're turning there, you also find it in your bulletin. Um, I want to help us lean in. So I'm going to tell you the story of a man who is described as having the face of an angel. Now, angel face was not like the chubby, you know, cute cheek cherubs that you might remember from Precious Moments or something like that. At least I don't think so. We don't have any pictures of him. But we do know that his countenance had less cute and more courage. You see, like John has been doing in this letter, angel face confronted his Israelite brothers with their sin, their sin issues. John did that at the end of chapter 1. But these brothers, they did not appreciate this at all. They actually tried arguing with him at first, but they could not withstand Angel Face's wisdom. So they bribed folks to start a smear campaign, and they put him on trial in front of everyone to ruin his reputation. But this man courageously stood on the truth of Scripture, and he showed them clearly their sin. And it was too much. They rushed at him wild with rage, covering their ears, and they dragged him out of the city to execute him. Outside this city, this angry mob began picking up rocks and hurling them at his person. Do you know what he did? As the rocks began to strike him, he got down on his knees and he began to pray. He prayed aloud, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. He prayed for them until that final rock struck, that final fatal rock. This man died loving his brothers. Who was this man? Stephen. He was the first Christian martyr. Read his story in Acts 6, Acts 7. Stephen's face during this time was described as radiant, like the face of an angel. So here's our question. What did Stephen see that could lead him to shine in this situation? Compel him to pray for his countrymen, even as they're murdering him. Lead him to forgive those who are taking every last thing away from him. What did he see? Stephen looked up and saw what John describes in our text. Are you eager to see what Stephen saw? Amen. Before we read, let's pray that God will open the eyes of our hearts. Father, uh, we come to you, and we're in desperate need. Our need is great. Our time is short. We pray that you'll send your Holy Spirit into our midst to open our eyes to capture a greater vision of who you are, and who we are in your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from 1 John, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, 
if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now our sermon text. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. For three weeks now, I have reread those opening two verses of chapter two, where John actually pulls back the veil to show us what is happening in heaven right now. Glory be. (laughs) Do you see it? The risen Jesus is up there advocating for us before the heavenly father. And notice who is not there. Satan. Satan, our accuser, is not there. By the way, that's what Satan means, accuser. Satan was in heaven in the text that we read from Zechariah 3, remember? In the Old Testament, Satan is in heaven, accusing us before God. Remember Job. But we no longer have an accuser in heaven, reciting our sins and all of our failures before God the Father. Why? Because the Father sent his Son to unseat Satan. Satan is not there anymore. In Luke 10, Jesus tells us as he sets his face to Jerusalem on his way to the cross, he says he saw Satan fall from heaven. His march to go save his chosen Jerusalem unseats Satan from his heavenly throne. And after his resurrection, Luke 24, now Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father to be our advocate. Friends, that is the new and better scene. Our accuser silenced, our advocate on our side. Now someone here is thinking, but Joel, I hear all the time Satan condemning me, clobbering me again and again and again. Yep, Satan's still busy firing darts all the time. But all those sticks and stones are earthbound, friends. They don't matter in the greater reality. John's message to start this chapter is, look up. Look up at Jesus. That's why we sing with joy when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within. Upwards I look and see him there who made an end to all my sins. John wants the Christian to see that the verdict is already in. You are not guilty. I'm looking at people who are as righteous as Jesus Christ. 
But I'm not going to talk about your guilt being gone today. I've done that the last two weeks, and I think Rex really set the plate there. Why not, Joel? Because I know for some of us that doesn't land. Guilt isn't really your thing. Not that you don't see guilt as a problem, but regret. Disappointment looms larger in your life. I was reading an article by a hospital chaplain last week named June Park, who identified himself, I like this, as a grief catcher. I resonate with that. He writes, a common theme among dying patients again and again and again is regret. Most of the regrets, he says, come down to, I only did what everyone else wanted, not what I wanted. Many of us near the end realize we were not able to fully be ourselves in life. We had to hide to survive. It was not always our fault. You hear what he's recognizing in these end-of-life confessions? Lost hope. Over and over, he has found that people at the end of their lives grieve. Hope lost. There's something mattering to do or to be. There's deep yearnings for success, for relationships. But that hope was never finally realized in this life. And some of you get that. Some of us fear final failure on that day when that final grain of sand falls through the hourglass of your life. Friends, here's what the Bible teaches. Your longings for achievements, for relationships, all these things are your efforts to be only what Jesus can be for you. Those aspirations are actually the case you're building to have a mattering life here on earth. But here's the bad news. You cannot build a case worthy of heaven even if you could perform on earth exactly how you wished. And the good news of the Bible, which Rex reminded us of, is you don't have to. This is actually what God showed Stephen. Remember Angel Face? Stephen was called a liar by his countrymen. He was labeled as a traitor. Ever had lies told to smear your name? Ever been vilified by people? Stephen was humiliated. His reputation is now mud, but they kept going, didn't they? They stripped every last earthly hope Stephen ever had as they took his life from him. Yet, Stephen's story ends with no regrets. That can only be true of the Christian. Stephen looked up, and he saw that his true trial was over long ago before they rigged this kangaroo court. There in heaven, he saw his case before God. Jesus the righteous right there and he rejoiced his face was radiant because the only verdict that mattered about him was already in he was approved by God he was loved forever fellowship with the father was his eternal future and because that was true look what he could do he could love sinful brothers all the way to the end in hopes that they might know this same fellowship and his joy be made complete Here's our point today. To the degree that you get God's acceptance of you, you will shine and be able to love. John says you're in Christ. He's already made your case. You no longer have to live trying to earn favor with God. The verdict is in. You are a friend of God, just like Abraham. And you can live eternal life starting now. Friends, you can live to be light and love others with no regrets. You can live to be light and love others without regrets. 
And all that comes from personal relationship with the Father and the Son sent to save us from our sin. That was John's message all the way up to chapter 2, verse 2. But John now wants us to have assurance of that. So he next gives three diagnostic tests to examine our fellowship with God. To understand what is true inside us spiritually, we need objective tests. What's true subjectively, we need to have actually verifiable evidence on the ground to monitor our spiritual life in God, to locate those places where we're prone to be self-deceived, which John said in chapter 1 is normal. We are all prone to be self-deceived. We saw last week, test number one is our obedience. Knowing God is first volitional. volitional. An obedient life reveals a heart that loves God's will and then lives by trusting and obeying. Personal relationship with Jesus demands your soul, your life, your all, as the hymn says. Today's diagnostic, test number two, asks us to examine if something is true in us that is true in Jesus. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Our first point is new and true, though that, what that is is something of a puzzle to start. I mean, first, what's the command John's referring to? He has not yet given us a single imperative in this letter. Second, he says, I'm, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, but, it, but it's new. John, will you make up your mind? What command is both old and new, now true in him, and true in you. I guess that sounds like a rhythm gallon would come up, right, to, to test Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> well, John gave us a clue, actually, right from the start when he addressed us as beloved. Beloved. First time. He loves his fellow believers. Test number two, friends, is the love test. Vertical relationship is evidenced by horizontal relationships within the body of Christ. John's readers actually wouldn't be puzzled by this because they knew his gospel well, his command to love, this old and new command. They'd read John 13 and that amazing scene where Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this all people will know, will shine, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The night of Jesus' betrayal, he gives a new command to love and to have love for one another. Now, to love was as old as Moses. He commanded this way back in Leviticus 19. But nobody was ever to fulfill this command until the Son of God came. That is why Jesus is called the light of the world. Jesus' coming, friends, was an epoch-changing event. He revealed God's love and he fulfilled the command. That's why John can speak of a command as old as the Torah becoming now new in Jesus Christ. No one ever loved like Jesus. Jesus' love makes an old command new. I like Daniel Aiken. He says it's as old as the sun, but new as the dawn. New as the dawn. And I think the best way to understand this love dawning would actually be to go back to that scene in John 13. Do you remember it? Where the disciples what they would have seen that night as Jesus actually, right before this, gave an illustration of love, love one another. Imagine sitting there in the upper room with Jesus, 
Picture yourself there. Lord Jesus, a final Passover feast. And suddenly your master rises up from his seat. He strips off his garments. He puts on the apron of a servant, of a slave. Then he goes and he gets a bowl. He fills it with water. And then he gets down on his knees right before you. What would go through your mind if the Lord Jesus kneeled before you, looked you in the eyes, and waited for you to extend your dirty, smelly, ugly feet? I see some of us squirming like Peter. Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. You'd be embarrassed. You'd think you're unworthy of this. You thinking that? Jesus would lovingly look you in the eyes and wash you all the same. Some of you know this. You've experienced this. That's why you're here this morning. In your heart, you feel that. Jesus would actually, though, kneel and wash the feet of those who are unworthy. Judas. How could Jesus love like this on the final night of his earthly ministry? Why? Because the verdict was already in. His approval actually came on the first day of his ministry. Do you remember how Jesus' ministry began with another washing? began with a baptism and a broadcast. Jesus came up from the water and he heard this from the Father, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus looked up just like we're called to and he heard his Father declare fellowship that he's well pleasing, he was approved. And because Jesus knew he was approved by his heavenly Father, love from above, he could go out knowing that he was going to impact the world, being able to love horizontally. Now, I know Jesus is fully God, but Jesus is also fully man. Fully man. And he could love horizontally all the way to the death because he knew of that vertical love from the Father. And this is the same reason Stephen could get on his knees and pray for God to forgive on his final day of his ministry. Stephen saw what was true in Jesus was true in him at that moment. And he saw at that moment the darkness was already passing away. He was assured of that. Do you see what Stephen saw? A new reality that he could share now with other people, with his brothers in the Lord. New commandment, which is true in Jesus. And friends, that means it's true in you. It's true in you. Because the verdict is in, you are united with the reigning Son of God in heaven. That means we are able to love like Jesus by the power of his spirit. So to be a disciple, to know that we know God, that's the question here, right? Do we truly know God intimately that way? We must love one another. And we know if our love is genuine, if our love is like Jesus' love, all we have to do is make sure the starting place of our love is the same starting place of Jesus' love. You see? When this happens, guess what? That makes us, the church, the most dynamic love force on the planet. We're the most powerful people on the planet. I, I measure my words carefully, but if you have the Holy Spirit, God Almighty dwelling in you, the spirit of love, we are the most powerful people in the entire planet. And we perform, not out of our power totally, but because also we recognize we're well-pleasing. And we're excited because the darkness is being extinguished more and more. Every time another person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we see them set free now to live to love the same way we are. So let's move on to better understand this love. Our next point is light and love. Verse 9, Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in, I would say, it, that love, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. For John, sometimes he's, he can struggle with him. There's, there's no middle ground. There's these dualities, right? Just as darkness is the absence of light, hate is the absence of love. If you hate a brother or sister, friend, you are in darkness. You're walking with no idea where you're going. And by nature, you're blind, just like the world out there, the world we grieve over. You get tired of the growing hatred you see out there, the blindness to what is good and true in our community. Slander, lying, revenge, perversion, pornography, selfishness, cowardice, cruelty. We live in a culture stumbling in darkness, blind to the path of destruction that they're walking on. Which is why we who are Jesus people, we need to abide in the light by loving one another and helping each other to stay in that light. Because in that light, there's no cause for stumbling. So how do we do that? How do we do that? I'd suggest we continue to keep in front of us Jesus' love illustration. Washing feet. What do we know about feet? I know we don't like to look at them very much. We don't like other people looking at them, as said one saint to Pastor Joel at the hospital Friday night when they made her go barefoot. Most of us feel like that person about our feet. And in Jesus' culture, feet would have actually been far uglier, far smellier, far dirtier. They're not attractive. They would have been more injured. Yet Jesus targets our feet when he says, go love, go love. Now, this is countercultural. I want you to see that. Because one way our world defines love is by saying love is about attraction. See what Jesus is doing? Any of you attracted to feet? The Bible says the wrong starting place for love is attraction. Actually, attraction is how all our regrets began. The serpent said to the woman in Genesis 3, Take what attracts you. You won't regret it, you'll be like God. You will be fully satisfied. And Eve saw that the fruit was good to eat. It was attractive, pleasing to the eye. She and Adam took and ate and regret. That moment landed on planet Earth. The shame of sin. The sin of taking and eating resulted in instant shame. That was the very first thing we learn about them. Suddenly they're ashamed. It not only ruined relationship with God, then read on in Genesis 3. That's your homework. The wreck spun out horizontally too. Adam immediately threw his wife under the bus. Do you ever listen to modern poets, the music, and hear the Genesis 3 echoes? When I hear the anguish in Johnny Cash's song, Hurt, I see Adam hiding behind the leaves. What have I become, my sweetest friend? As I see them limping off in exile, I see Adam looking over at Eve and saying, I will let you down. I will make you hurt. But folks still buy the devil's lie, even to the day. That's why he keeps using it. That love begins with attraction. And not just physical, okay? 
We're attracted to how others make us feel. We're attracted by their accomplishments, right? We like to be like people who have a lot of success, by their intellect. We love, the world tells us to love because of what a person has to offer us. Because we desire them. Here's the problem if that's love. That desire always leads to devouring, just like Genesis 3. I need this other person to fill me up, to satisfy my heart hungers. My emptiness is actually what draws me into relationship with them. Actually, an illustration, I walked out to my garden a couple days ago, and I looked at my tomatoes and peppers, which, by the way, with those babies, I haven't heard of anything in my garden. I went out there, and actually, I just simply enjoyed their beauty. I enjoyed their beauty. I did not take and eat like I so often do when I go out to the garden. Why not, Joel? Because I was full when I went out. I wasn't hungry. I pulled out a few weeds. I straightened a few plants that had fallen over. I simply cared for them without devouring any of them, and I appreciated their beauty. That's what Jesus' love is like. Jesus doesn't pick the most attractive to devour. Remember? Because he was full. He was in fellowship with the Father. He was already full. That's why he was able to love the unattractive, and that's what we see Jesus do again and again and again. Fellowship is why the verdict being in was why he could spend his life to raise up and help others. You see how I love for the unattractive is a test of true fellowship? If you can go and care for a person who can actually do nothing for you, it reveals that you're filled with living waters that are flowing from your own heart, just like from Jesus. Our world tells us that what is attractive is filling. It's in the songs, the movies, the book. We're bombarded with this. We enter a relationship seeing how this person might satisfy me, and the result is lots of regrets all along the way. After one, and one of two things will happen. We either go Mick Jagger and just devour and devour because I can't get no satisfaction, or we get devoured and we go Paul Simon and we become a rock, we become an island. He says, don't talk of love. I've heard the word before. I have no need for friendship. Friendship causes pain. I'm a rock. I'm an island because a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. Actually, Simon gets something right there. If you enter into friendship, it will cause you pain. Love requires you being vulnerable. Read C.S. Lewis on this. If you give love to anything, even a pet, the other option is to give your heart to no one, and your heart will become irredeemable, calcified. But you cannot love if you don't actually give of yourself, expose yourself to hurt. That means you have to be filled with another source. I want to get a second truth about love we learned from washing feet. John says we cannot let others stumble in the darkness, Our, their feet, right? But what does the world say? Love is tolerance. Love is tolerance. If you don't accept and affirm what I believe, my lifestyle, you don't love me. That's what people say, right? You feel that pressure all the time, and then you don't feel like you're loving them? You feel like we're not loving people if we, don't, if we get upset about their choices. Friends, Jesus says this. Get on your knees, notice the posture, and wash feet. Or if someone kneels before you, somebody might come to you after the service today. Let them wash your feet. Tolerance of sin in the church is not love. 
Sin must grieve us. Sin must anger us. Otherwise, we don't have Jesus' love in our hearts. In her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, Rebecca Pippert tells the story of a pair of addicts she knew. And she said, watching their daily ritual destroy them made her furious. She writes this, I was grieved and sickened to see the wasted potential, but I also felt fury. Everything in me wanted to shake them to say, can't you see? Don't you know what you're doing to yourself? You become less and less yourself every time I see you. Don't you know what you're doing to yourself? I wasn't angry because I hated them. I was angry because I cared. If I hadn't loved them, I could have walked away, but love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. E.H. Gifford wrote, Human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him, the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Real love looks around and sees what Jesus sees, a person's potential, God's image still in them, all that they could be if they would step into the light. The hospital chaplain rightly saw that we realize we're not able to fully be ourselves. Much of that is because we need help getting clean from all sorts of lies we believe, from all sorts of addictions that we've been brought into by this world. And some of us we do. We hide to survive. Some of us have been traumatized by evil in this world. And someone was joking with me how they struggle even to reach their feet the other day. Friends, our feet need help. All of our feet. They need to be cleansed of the regrets. You want to make a difference in the world? Look around and start seeing whose feet our need of care. Do what Jesus did for you. And be prepared for one of three reactions at least. And let's start with the negative. You might find some people are indifferent. Some people won't believe that there's actually something better and they want to stay in their sin. Recall in Lewis's last battle, that scene with the dwarves. They've been brought in this place of glory. And Aslan pours out all these gifts, the wonderful drinks and all this wonderful food, but they, they can't enjoy any of it. They choose to remain in darkness. And Lewis writes, they feared being taken in so they couldn't be taken out. This is actually the hardest part of preaching. Because I always know that one of two things are happening in every human heart that I talk to. Your hearts are either being tenderized to love Jesus and your brothers and sisters more, or they're being calcified and made harder. A second thing can happen <laughs> if you go to wash feet. Might get hit with a stone. If that happens, come talk to me or someone else. You might need help. Take comfort that even as you're wounded, if you're going with love, with the right posture, you're actually suffering for Jesus. And sometimes then a third thing can take place. Saul witnessed Stephen's martyrdom. And he would later be converted to Jesus Christ. He saw his face shining like an angel. And Stephen was the spark that lit the Apostle Paul, which resulted in the blazing Europe of a century later. 
Europe was brought out of darkness and into the light. I know we're running short on time. Let me move on to this little puzzling piece that John then follows up with. He's doing something interesting. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is kind of another puzzle. <laughs> what is this? The, it's actually, I think, the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John. The Apostle of Love, showing he's also a poet. He writes love songs, too. Similar to some today, right? There's a lot of modern songs that have a whole lot of repetition in them. Some of us oppose that. But no, actually, maybe repetition. There's a little ditty that he's giving for the church to sing to themselves. Because sometimes we hear those voices, right? Failure, regret. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, don't listen to yourself. Don't listen to Satan. Preach to yourself. John is actually saying, sing to yourself. Sing truths to believe. And he gives truths for every, saints of every of every stripe, every stage of life in the church. Perhaps this is maturity. Perhaps it's I'm not an either-or guy. Um, John has something special here for everyone to walk away with because the gospel comes at us in different ways. He begins with how he started this chapter, forgiveness from the Father. Look up. Children, when you believe in Jesus, all your sins, all your guilt for bad thoughts and actions are just taken away. You can sing with John. Jesus loves me, he who died. Heaven's gates to open wide. He will wash away my sins. Let his little child come in. Older saints who uh, tend to grow more forgetful and you have less theories and more questions. Maybe you see the world changing in ways that make you feel like you're more and more disconnected. Rest assured that you know him who is from the beginning. You have a relationship with a God who has existed always and that ever abides. And young people, I think John is saying, don't forget the secret of your strength. You may be world conquerors right now. You face challenges that the uninitiated, the children, have not, and you lack the wisdom of the senior. So you really have to go out there, right? And devil seems to be running wild in your day. When you beat the devil... Just remember, you have a power source to keep you standing tall. Stay in your Bibles. Allow the Word of God to abide in you. And also see this Bible as a personal invitation to know Jesus Christ. That's what this is. This is a personal invitation. Our relationship is not, this is not a book of rules. This is about a relationship with a personal God. And so long as you do that, you'll continue to defeat the accuser of your soul. And I'll close by pointing out three things John says to reassure us. He says three times, you know, you know, you know. John keeps saying that in this gospel because he wants you to know Jesus. And so I want to close with us reciting our verse, September verse of the month one more time. This is Jesus' prayer. Find it at the bottom of your bulletin. Let us say, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's 
a whole lot of right answers. I said this last week to why the Father sent Jesus Christ his son. People will tell you, yeah, he came to bring us peace, to save us from our sins, to conquer death, to conquer the devil, to make us better people, to give eternal life. And all those answers are right. But if that's as far as you go, do you know what Jesus would say to you? Do you know what John says to you here? You missed the point. Jesus says to you, the reason I came and did all I did and continue to do what I'm doing in heaven is that you might know God. The eternal life I won for you is knowing God. I came so you might know God truly and really. So your reason for being is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Knowing God and having a personal relationship is the glory you were created for. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, some of us come here and we have not heard the gospel before, maybe for the first time. Some of us come here and we've been, we've grown up in church, we've heard about you all our lives, but we still lack a true, dynamic, personal, growing relationship with you, O Father, and you, Jesus. We ask that you will give us your spirit in new measure, that we might commit ourselves to knowing you more and more. We ask that you'll help us to live into the full experience of eternal life that you've given us that begins even now. And help us to trust that as you perfect our love relationship, you're going to more and more free us to begin assignments at your initiative that we cannot possibly fail at because of who we serve. Thank you that we can live with no regrets. Only the Christian can say this because we got our eyes fixed on heaven above. We're actually already, our resume is in. We're fully pleasing in your sight. We have a relationship with you. We're in Jesus Christ. That means we can shine, shine brightly to a fallen world for the sake of Jesus and to the praise of his glory. We close this prayer in his name. Amen. Amen.